Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Hello, this is Michael Dowd, host of Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. In this conversation, recorded in August of 2019, I speak with ecologist, author, and teacher extraordinaire, Tom Wessels. You'll see that in this conversation, I invite Tom to share with us the main points that he makes in his extraordinary book, The Myth of Progress. There are three previews. We've titled this Right Relationship. Preview one. The idea that we are separate from nature um, and have dominion over it was the starting point. Yeah. Um, because we're not. We're, we're completely a part of nature and nature is a part of us. And it was somehow that weird worldview of separation that started us on this road. Preview two. When I used to teach my principles of sustainability class right at the very start, I, I'd say that, you know, what you realize in this class is that sustainability is all about right relationship. Um, yeah. Right relationship with ourselves, through our reflective practice, with our communities, through real community engagement and with our mother earth that we are a part of, we are not separate from it. And that one of the tragedies of our culture is that relationships been very much shattered. We don't have those deep relationships that we used to have as a human community for hundreds of thousands of years. Yes, it's exactly. a very, very recent rapid change and you never hear about it, but we've lost a lot in terms of relationship. Preview three. The good news is that in all complex systems, all meaningful change always bubbles up from the bottom. Yeah, so yeah. that's where I've found to focus my attention is at the community level. The conversation begins. Well, Tom, I am delighted uh, that you are able to participate in this series because uh, my wife, Connie Barlow, who's a science writer and a, a naturalist, and we first encountered your work um, probably about four or five years ago, the myth of progress toward a sustainable future and, and just loved it. I mean, it, we thought so highly of it that, as you know, I recorded the audio. Um, I consider it right up there with William Catton's book, Overshoot, in terms of really helping people get the ecological paradigm. Um, so before I go into the kinds of questions that I'm asking everybody in this particular series, which is more along the lines of, you know, their personal story of how they came to and understanding that things are looking challenging to say the least. I mean, we all grew up, those of us who were born in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, with an understanding or an expectation that things would just keep getting better and better. And uh, the myth of progress, really. And, um, and then that shifted for most of us, uh, all of us in this series. So could you help the viewer or the listener sort of get who you are? Say a little bit about your background and, and what you've been doing professionally. Okay, well, I'm a terrestrial ecologist. That means I'm focused on work in uh, 
land-based ecosystems. I guess I'm best known for my work in forest ecosystems, but I have a strong interest in desert, alpine, arctic ecosystems. Um, I tend to be as an academic, as I am now a professor emeritus in a graduate school, um, I tend to be a generalist, which is unusual, uh, but I find it to be very helpful because it allows me to be pretty transdisciplinary. So I not only have interest <clears throat> in ecology, but a strong interest in geology, um, complex systems theory, uh, the interface of nature and culture, and uh, I guess the way all these different things mix. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, related to this theme of a post-doom conversation, um, conversations exploring overshoot grief, gratitude, and grounding. First of all, just in terms of the language, does post, what, what do you think of when you hear the term post-doom and what well, language do you use? It sounds apocalyptic, but um, I guess in my case, I never felt doom. I have felt sadness. I think probably back around the 1990s, I began to realize that it wasn't that humans were bad. Uh, it was our, our current system that was terribly flawed. And um, I knew that it had to change uh, for the future well-being of this planet and the people that live on this planet, that it, it had to change. My hope was that we would wake up, realize that you know, our paradigm was off, our worldview was off. Um, I don't know why in Western culture we went this route of really um, focusing on things like power and dominance and competition and you know, the right of the individual instead of the, the right of the communal. Um, but it's, it's terribly flawed. So I had hoped that we would find a way to wake up and change this thing from the bottom up. It would have to be coming from the bottom up, not the top down, because in a complex system, the top tries to maintain the status of the system. Um, and then it began to dawn on me probably sometime in the last, I don't know, 10 years that Time was running out on us to really do this. There's still, I think, a slight chance that we could turn this around. Um, but I don't have a lot of hope for that right now. I still have hope that because in a complex system, you can never predict how things are going to play out. And something may come about that really is a catalyst for change. Um, but that said, I don't have doom because I feel this, this system has to go away one yes. way or another. And it has. It's already caused a lot of suffering to humanity. And um, so I, I'm saddened. I don't feel doomed because also another reason I don't feel doomed in, in <coughs> working with complex systems, you learn to do a lot of scaling, to scale up to larger spatial or temporal levels, because when you do that, you really see the context of a situation. And by doing that, I know that uh, in the long run, humanity is going to be fine. We're not going to extinguish ourselves. We're a very, very resilient species. And the biosphere will be fine. It's resilient as well. It will come back. Um, but the system has to go one way or another. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not as confident as you that uh, there's no way that we could go extinct. It seems to me, whether it's in 50 years or 5 million years, we're going to yeah. go extinct. Well, I don't think, I think, I think we'll make it through this. Like you said, it's a bottleneck. Right. Well, we'll probably see big reductions in population and stuff, but I, I'm confident we'll make it through and we will refine our way. We'll go back to the way we existed for tens and tens of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, William Catton speaks about homo colossus, distinguishing homo colossus and homo sapiens. Homo colossus is where each of us uses 20 to 50 times the resources and exudes 20 to 50 times the waste. And it seems to me homo colossus is absolutely destined for extinction uh, oh, yeah. and necessary. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean the extinction of homo sapiens. Right. But again, even, even that, I, I have come to peace with the possibility of the extinction of homo sapiens only because then it has no power over me. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not terrified by that. And so I'm engaged to do as much as I can on behalf of life. My wife, Connie, is, is a main point person in, term, in North America in terms of assisting trees and migrating north. Um, so doing whatever we can to plant soil, move trees, um, help our communities live more ecologically and sort of not be attached to the results because there's, there's chaos on the horizon. <laughs> there's challenging times. Yeah. And again, when scaling up, we see that most species, you know, exist for about 3 million years. Uh, species have a lifespan just the way we do. So eventually humans will cease to exist anyways. Um, yes. down exactly. The road. Exactly. I'd love to ask you some questions about, uh, about your book, The Myth of Progress, and, and then some of your other writings, and then we'll jump into those other questions. Because your five chapters in The Myth of Progress are so helpful, and it's not doesn't take long to, uh, to read, and there are five chapters, The Myth of Control, The Myth of Growth, The Myth of Energy, The Myth of the Free Market, and The Myth of Progress. And I'm just wondering if, Tom, if you could just take a couple minutes and just describe just a little bit what you're saying there. The, the first chapter, the myth of control, complex versus linear systems. Sure. So, you know, our, our culture is very much immersed in a linear paradigm that was really brought about by Rene Descartes back in the 1600s. And it's been powerful, but it is limited when you're dealing with a complex system. And pretty much everything we deal with, except machines, are complex systems. So... In complex systems, well, in linear systems, there is a sense that if you know the parts, you know the system, you can control it. That's why a lot of our interventions and things, when I think of our foreign policy and stuff, is misguided, because we, we try to fix particular little things without understanding the system. And that often gets us into trouble. So that's the myth of control, is that we can control things when in a complex system, we really can't. There's feedback loops, there's bifurcation events, things we can't anticipate, and we can actually um, end up creating more havoc or problems by not understanding that. So that's what that chapter is about, really getting into complex systems theory and showing out how control is really a myth. Um, what we really need to do is see systems in a much more larger holistic way understand what's going on with them, and then see if there are points of intervention where we can work with the system, but it's not tweaking it with just changing a part here or there. It's really looking at the whole dynamic. Yeah, and the fundamental complex system, of course, is the biosphere, the ecosphere. It's, it's ecology. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. as are all of our human systems are all complex. Yes, yes, exactly. And what's beautiful about complex system science is once you understand the principles, you can be completely transdisciplinary, but it's the same principles apply in any system. So as an ecologist in the myth of progress, I'm really critiquing our current socioeconomic system. I have no background as an economist, but I feel completely comfortable doing it because I can just look at the basic principles and see how the way we've structured it, we're not following these critical principles. Yes, exactly, exactly. So chapter two, the myth of growth, limits and sustainability. Yeah, so we don't have any examples of systems that continuously grow. All systems are nested 
within other systems. So like our cells are nested in our bodies, uh, we're nested in the biosphere. And because of that nestedness, if anyone's system just keeps growing, it's gonna start degrading the larger system it's within and you'll get a feedback loop from that larger system that kicks in and will eventually curtail that growth. It's not a question of whether it'll happen, just how or when it will happen. Um, so this notion that the only way we can progress is through economic growth is really misguided, especially if that growth is based on ever increasing use of energy and material resources. Because all we do is just end up degrading the biosphere to a greater to greater degree, and then the feedback eventually kick in and just stop that growth. Yeah, yeah, amen. Chapter three, the myth of energy, the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah, really important because the second law states that although we, can we can't create or destroy energy, we can transform it from one state to another. But whenever we do that, during the transformation, some energy is lost from the system where that transformation occurs. So for any open systems like our bodies that can take in energy or give off energy or the biosphere which can take in energy and bleed off energy, they can be in one of three states. Uh, if they take in more energy, then they're bleeding off in the transformations. They are an anti-entropic system. That's a system that grows, and if it self-organizes, becomes more complex through time. Um, when systems reach maturity, they become dynamic equilibrium systems. That means the amount of energy coming in is equal to what's being bled off from its transformation. So that's what we are as adults. We take in about 2,000 food calories a day and give off 2,000 calories of heat a day. But it's a third state that I focus on in that book, and that's a state where a system is bleeding off more energy from its transformations than it's taking in. And that's a state where the system becomes entropic. And many people say, well, as a system becomes entropic, it moves from a state of um, order to disorder. I don't like those because they're very subjective. Right. Uh, you could look at a cornfield, looks very orderly, but it's actually a pretty entropic system compared to an ecosystem. So a much better way to measure entropy is that entropic systems, as they bleed off energy, move from a state of complexity to a state of simplicity and a state of concentration of energy and materials to a state of diffusion. So a good example of this would be a tree getting uprooted in the forest. It dies. It's an entropic system. As decomposers start extracting energy out of that tree, its complex structure starts breaking down. Its complex molecules like cellulose and lignin get broken down to simple molecules like carbon dioxide and water. And after a number of decades, that tree is completely gone, reduced down to very, very simple molecules that are diffused in the air or into the soil. So the reason I bring this up, the biosphere has been around for 3.8 billion years. It's really hard for people to wrap their head around that amount of time. So I use an analogy. I think of, I ask people to think of a sheet of paper, the thickness representing a century, and ask, well, how, how high a stack would we need each sheet rep representing a century to represent 3.8 billion years? And the stack would be over three miles in height. Um, it's staggering. But throughout its tenure, the biosphere has been, um, well, for the first basically 3.5 billion years, an anti-entropic system. It took in more energy from solar gain through photosynthesis than was releasing as heat from the metabolism of all the biota. And that built up our 21% oxygen atmosphere. It built up a lot of biomass on the planet, including all these fossil fuels and coal and oil and things that were sequestered away. 
And then about 300 million years ago, uh, the biosphere became a mature system and was at dynamic equilibrium. But for the first time in its history, it's now an entropic system. And it's solely because of our actions where we are basically transforming such high rates of energy that we're surpassing the amount of energy coming in and being fixed within the biosphere. So the biosphere is becoming simplified energy and materials being diffused. Yeah, that's great. That's a great overview. Thank you. So chapter four is the myth of the free market, the loss of diversity and democracy. Yeah, that chapter really focuses on the complex science principle of self-organization, that self-organizing systems, as they develop, get more complex. And the complexities derive from the parts becoming ever more specialized, but tightly integrated together, such that each part doing what it needs to do to sustain itself creates conditions that sustain the whole. And as a result, these self-organizing systems grow increasingly resilient and stable. Uh, another way to look at this is that if we go out, let's say in the natural world, uh, coevolution is the self-organizing process out there through evolutionary time. And through time, it's creating species that become more and more and more specialized. That means that an ecosystem can support more and more species through time. And it builds up a lot of repetition of function and, and critical functional roles like if we go out like in the woods around here, we're not going to find just a handful of decomposing organisms. We've got thousands of them. Yeah. You're not going to find just a handful of pollinators. We've got a thousand or more of them. Uh, we don't have just a handful of photosynthetic plants. We've got hundreds and hundreds of them. So self-organization decentralizes critical functional roles. Whenever we move in the opposite way of concentrating or centralizing critical roles, <clears throat> the system moves towards instability and lack of resiliency. And that's pretty much what our free market system has done. It's moved away from having lots and lots of small specialized business enterprises. And now it doesn't matter what sector you look at, whether it's pharmaceuticals or energy or media or retail, um, agriculture, the bulk of the capital is running through a, a very few number of very, very large corporate entities. And um, people don't realize that really makes the system not resilient and very fragile. Yes, so exactly. a good example of this would have been the financial meltdown of 2008. Um, many people pinned that on risky investments. Well, they were the catalyst. But the underlying reason was that 54% of all the banking assets in this country are held by just 10 banks, an incredible concentration of capital in very few hands. And with so many banks that failed during that period and then got taken over by the large banks, we're even less right. uh, diversified now, something like 82% of all the capital is held by 10 banks. So I don't know what will do it, but there'll probably be another catalyst. And the next time it's gonna be a much bigger problem because the system has no resiliency. Yeah. So yeah. that's what that is looking at. That's yeah. That's great. And, and I also understand that you significantly sort of beefed up or worked on that chapter in your revision from 2006 because of the meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to get more into aspects of climate change, which are one outcome and also um, wanted to get really into showing how if we just follow the way nature works, Nature is a perfect model of a sustainable system. It's not only sustained itself, it's thrived. Yes. Um, and it's done it by uh, 
creating more and more specialized entities, tightly integrated together, creating this very resilient system. Um, that's what we need to sort of go back to uh, because the current system is, is terribly flawed. Yeah, what gives me hope is the realization that um, whatever remnant of humanity survives this coming bottleneck, um, should any of us survive, which I think there's a pretty decent chance, um, they'll have to live this way. They'll have to model nature because nature is not just a, a, an it. Nature is a thou. So they'll mythologize that as all sustainable cultures have. Right. So chapter five, the myth of progress, the need for cultural change. Yeah, I think that that chapter is really just saying that, um, and I mentioned this earlier, that we always look at what we've gained with this sort of system, which is, yes, we've gained material wealth and we've gained comfort, but the question is at what expense? And that's where I really get into the loss of relationship. Um, and uh, recount, I think I start that chapter by recounting an experience of coming across this ancient, um, he said, Adam Trail down in, northern Mexico, that these are the oldest footpaths in the Americas. They, they, we know they're at least 12,000 years old, but some climatologists are stating by looking at desert varnish on rocks that are embedded in these trails that they're probably 35,000 years old, but they're ancient. Mm -hmm. And so I started walking on this trail and it just struck me, well, my God, what was life actually like for these people? Because this is a really austere, tough place. And I realized that, yeah, life was probably physically challenging, being in a really arid desert environment like that. But then I thought it's probably was actually emotionally quite rich yes. because they had vibrant relationships within their clan community. They had a vibrant relationship with mother earth. They had stories and myths that made that linkage even stronger. And they had plenty of reflective time for their own practices. And so life could have been physically hard, but might've been experientially rich. And I think, we're the flip side of that. In our culture, we have become physically comfortable, but experientially and relationally poor. So that's what that chapter is about. Yeah, and and the physical comfort is of course temporary. This is when you when you get when you get overshoot, when you get carrying capacity, when you get that you can't have things getting better and better for some humans, and that process is degrading everything humans depend upon. You know, it's it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, or even an ecologist to see that that's not sustainable. No, it's not. Yeah, in fact, I, I created a, about a year ago a sort of it's been dubbed. Uh, a Pinker takedown video. I didn't call it that. I called it uh, sane versus insane progress. Mm -hmm. But where I, it's just 24 minutes long. It's up on YouTube, but it's, it's basically showing how you, those people who focus like Steven Pinker does and, and, and other prophets of progress uh, talk about how things are getting better and better for many human beings, uh, often uh, technologically and otherwise, uh, without in any way giving attention to how it's precisely economic growth and development and technological progress and complexity mm -hmm. that is also causing the precipital, precipitous uh, decline, like a free fall of yeah. every, every single system that we depend on. Yeah, well, here's, here's that linear thinking again, which yeah. basically states, well, it's worked in the past, it'll continue yeah. to work in the present, right. completely ignores feedback loops. And yes. um, every single environmental problem we're witnessing today, it's all from a technology. Yes. I mean, so 
technology is a useful tool and we can use it appropriately, but we have to be very wise about our technologies and just thinking that, oh yeah, we'll just continue to progress because technology will solve these problems. That's crazy because all the problems we're facing are the result of technologies. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think Joanna Macy once said something in an interview I remember seeing where, you know, we think technologies will solve our problem. Technologies are what caused the problem, which is just yeah. pretty much exactly what you're saying. It's a, a tool yeah. we can use, but the, the problem has to be solved by us behaving in a totally different way. Yeah, yeah, I think as long as we measure progress and measure well-being, in terms of how individuals and groups of individuals are doing. Yeah. Sort of anthropocentric measures of progress and well-being, we are going to self-destruct. It's only if we measure progress and well-being by how well the soil is doing decade by decade, how well the forests are doing decade by decade. And we should mention that, yes, for a select group, it's really worked well, but there's a lot of people who have been completely disenfranchised by this whole situation. There's a lot of human suffering out there that's been created by this uh, globally so that um, it's really a minority of people that have really benefited. Yeah, and even that's a shrinking class. Yeah. Well, tell me, say a little bit about some of your other books are just so highly rated on Amazon. You're really well known for reading The Force of Landscape, um, Forest Forensics. So say just a little bit about your other books as well. Okay, so those, those two books are um, very much related to showing people how they can go into a forest and literally read its history by picking up the evidence that's been left by past disturbances. So, you know, around here in New England, about 80% of our forests were once open agricultural land. So um, you can defer, I mean, you can infer whether it was crop field or pasture or hay field. You can infer when it was abandoned to go back to forest. You can interpret storm events, whether hurricanes or thunderstorms. You can date these things. You can figure out how many times a forest has been logged, when those occurred, if it's been subjected to fire. All that stuff leaves evidence that, if you know how to interpret it, can uh, bring about very detailed histories of the forest. And the reason I like it is that um, many people see nature as an Edenic blur, which is wonderful. But I think if you want to have intimacy, you have to know the story behind something. Yeah. So if you have intimacy with a person, you have to know what's formed them, what has made them who they are. It's the same with an ecosystem. It has its own history. And when you learn to read it, it develops a much more intimate relationship um, with that place. So that's, I think, why I like doing this. Well, I'm so grateful that you said it exactly like that, because as an eco-theologian, to my mind, relationship or out of relationship is the fundamental issue between sustainable and unsustainable and that it really it really is the ecologists who can begin to help us once again have an intimate personal what i call i thou that is a humble and respectful relationship to really that which is our source our sustenance and our end our material source sustenance and end and i see unsustainable cultures as those that have a concept of the divine that's not living that's that doesn't include the living world then right. those merely otherworldly or transcendent and that indigenous or first peoples or cultures that still were able to and still are able to then those pockets where they exist uh live in a way that doesn't diminish and degrade primary reality in a way that honors the living world as a greater thou not a lesser it um, do so precisely because they have relationship. Their language is relational. They have a personal relationship. And so that's one of the things that I love so much about your book, The Myth of 
progress is that you come back to that again and again um, throughout the course of the book. Um, yeah, it's, it's critical. Um, when I used to teach my principles of sustainability class right at the very start, I, I'd say that, you know, what you realize in this class is that sustainability is all about right relationship. Um, yeah. Right relationship with ourselves, through our reflective practice, with our communities, through real community engagement, and with our Mother Earth that we are a part of. We are not separate from it. And that one of the tragedies of our culture is that relationships have been very much shattered. We don't have those deep relationships that we used to have as a human community for hundreds of thousands of years. Yes, it's exactly. A very, very recent rapid change and you never hear about it, but we've lost a lot in terms of relationship. Oh, I completely agree. I think that's the, the, the fundamental difference is anthropocentrism, human centeredness, which we've only had for several thousand years and ecocentrism or life centeredness, which is the only thing that's sustainable. And that's the first 97% roughly of human yeah. history. Yeah, that is our heritage. So Tom, say a little bit more about um, uh, how you came, you know, like sort of a little bit of your life story in terms of how you viewed things in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. You touched on this, you began touching this as already, and then that how that began shifting the more you got into an ecological worldview and really understood um, decline. All right, I guess um, I would have to start with my freshman year in college in 1969. Um, I don't think I even had self-awareness that I was a person. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was good in math and science. My dad was an engineer. He said, you'll be great. Go to Johns Hopkins University and study industrial engineering, which seems odd for me nowadays. But uh, it was good because I got there. and I was completely disenchanted with what was going on. I thought, this is not what I want to do. And uh, I was also not good about being in a city, uh, being in Baltimore. Um, I, I miss being in a rural area. And luckily I had a pretty enlightened dorm head who said, you know, you gotta get your, your head out of these engineering books. And he gave me three books. The first one he gave me was Black Elk Speaks, which was just mind blowing for me. You know, my whole idea of Indians is what I had learned watching uh, television in the 1950s, you know, that the cowboys are the good guys, the Indians are the bad guys, that no knowledge of the genocide or the horrors that happened. And, to read that book and then see this man who was so deeply spiritual. I mean, the, the, the very beginning of that book, The Offering of the Pipe, the first pipe, five pages, I think the most amazing prose I've ever read. Because right away, it's just showing how inherently connected to Mother Earth we are and how sacred it is and how um, important that relationship is. Then I was given um, San County Almanac by this dorm head. And now I'm reading Leopold and seeing the same thing, but in a, a you yes. know, a European-based heritage person that's talking about this connection to land. And then I got Silent Spring. And that trio completely blew my mind. I read them all within that November of that, that semester. And um, yeah, I just knew that I had to do something that was going to resonate with my connection to the woods, which I always had a very strong connection to, which so I completely changed my career path for the better, no doubt. Um, in the 70s, it was a very heady time. I thought, okay, we're really making strides here. I mean, you couldn't get elected to office. I don't care if you were a Republican, Democrat, you couldn't get elected to office if the environment wasn't right up there in the number two or three on your priority list. Um, 
so I guess it was by the 1990s and I realized, boy, this environmental movement has really lost traction. And part of that was a linear approach to things and, and trying to, to see people as almost separate from the environment. Like we were bad, the environment is good when it wasn't people, it was our systems. And I realized, okay, the real problem here is not us as people, it's the systems that we use. It's our worldview that we've accepted. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm gonna start teaching this. So I started, that's when I started teaching the principles of sustainability class. That was back oh, early, mid nineties, which gave rise to the book, The Myth of Progress. Um, but I'm guessing that probably as I got into, I don't know, 2010, something like that, I thought, you know, we really, we have time, but we don't have a lot of time. And, you know, we're not making major strides at a systemic level. We, we do have a lot of good things happening, um, but larger scale change was not happening at the rate I was hoping. So that's when I began to realize, okay, uh, this is not how I envisioned it. Um, you know, there was sadness, but at the same time a realization, well, you know, if that's the way it happens, that's the way it happens. Uh, but at least the system will change and there'll be a new open horizon for the biosphere and for humanity. Yeah. And that, what you just articulated in the last 30 seconds is what I'm meaning by post doom. Uh -huh. it, it, not that you've necessarily felt it in a way that you would describe as doom, mm -hmm. but this, the sadness, the grief, the, uh, the heartbreak of having worked for change in a positive direction, worked for change along ecological lines, having some hope that it would be successful at some scale. And then at some point realizing, you know, something, I don't think we're going to be successful, certainly not in the ways or at the scale that I would have liked. And then the emotional hit that that often comes. And then ultimately moving through whatever stages of grief or whatever anger or bargaining or depression or, you know, whatever, whatever just the sadness mm -hmm. to a place of engaged action, doing what you can, where you can make a difference and trusting, but you can't make a difference. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. And for me, you know, um, you know, I guess, Around that time, I gave up optimism or pessimism. I didn't see them as useful anymore. Yeah. If you're optimistic, you're not going to do much to promote important change. If you're pessimistic, you then are paralyzed. Um, but I have hope. I still have hope. Uh, there's always the possibility that something could happen. The further down this timeline we go, the, the possibly gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But it's not out of the picture yet. Um, and so, yeah, that... I, I, I have hope and um, I have not let it, you know, affect me emotionally. I just do what I can do. And uh, a lot of that is just community building at the local scale, you know, yes. and that's valuable. So, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, that, I mean, I don't see hope personally. I don't see hope as neutral. Hope to me is like liquid. Some liquids will kill you. Some liquids will sustain you. There are some forms of hope or things that we can hope for or in that actually continue to, empower us or inspire us to live in an anti-future way in a non-ecological, consumptive, destructive way. And there are some hopes that we can have or put our faith in that actually inspire us to downshift our lifestyles and live more ecologically. So mm -hmm. I, 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 um, the word hope itself is a little problematic in my world. Um, mm -hmm. It depends on what you're hoping in or hoping for. Um, but inspiration, I think there's plenty of inspiration uh, for the, us to realize how profoundly related and interconnected we are with all of life, with all beings, um, and to realize that 
even extinction isn't the last word that that uh, the re regeneration is sort of the way of life um, mm -hmm. and that we yeah, can I participate mean, in that we've had what five major extinction events that we have evidence of and you know something like up to 90 percent of the species in the globe wiped out but it only took nature about 15 million years to not only rebuild all that biotic diversity but it succeeded at each time so um I'm confident that this is a little blip and it's going to be much smaller, I think, than the, the other ones, um, but it'll be a big impact on probably human civilization. Oh, surely, surely. Well, Tom, you mentioned uh, Black Elk, uh, Aldo Leopold, Rachel Carson, any other authors or uh, significant influences on you or resources that you would recommend to folk? Oh, boy. There's quite a few, I, you know, I'll, I'll probably leave a number out, but um, I'd say Capra's uh, book, The Web of Life is a really critical book. That was one that I used a lot in my teaching and sort of influenced the method progress. Um, I, the writing is cumbersome, so, um, but uh, there's worthwhile information there. And then I think um, some of our more recent, I'd say spiritual teachers, people like Terry Tempest Williams, I find very informative. Um, uh, one of my good friends, Lorette Savoy, came out with a book called Trace, which I think is a really important narrative of memory, place, and people and finding your way um, through troubled times and stuff. Uh, so those are, are works that just immediately come to mind. Well, I'm curious, uh, related to sort of the story, the past, as well as the future, uh, have you had thoughts around, well, if we only had done this by this time, or if we only sort of that, that uh, if only, like where did humanity sort of, you know, take a wrong turn or take a non-ecological turn or whatever, or do you have more of a sense of sort of inevitability that this is what uh, symbolic speech using tool making animals would do in almost any, you know, I don't think it's inevitable because I think we had, like you said, indigenous cultures that could live in ways with this planet and with this earth that was not like what we're doing. So I think it's our worldview. I think somehow the idea that we are separate from nature um, and have dominion over it was the starting point. Yeah. Um, because we're not. We're, we're completely a part of nature and nature is a part of us. And it was somehow that weird worldview of separation that started us on this road. And I, maybe once we got in that track, it was inevitable. Because if you have that worldview, then nature just becomes a commodity. And then you are, if you develop technologies, you're gonna drive down that path, so. Yeah, well, I, I think language undergirds that, that once we call primary reality nature, once we refer to primary reality merely as the environment, we, that almost forces us or, or makes it effortless for us to see ourselves as above and yeah. uh, dominating and that sort of thing. Whereas we, we probably wouldn't have deceived ourselves if God had, if the word God hadn't become trivialized as merely otherworldly rather than sort of a proper name for mm -hmm. the ecosphere also. In addition to yourself, two of the people along ecological lines that have had the biggest impact on me, uh, I mentioned William Catton and his book, Overshoot, but also Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith, who was the, who was the founder and the, uh, the editor of The Ecologist magazine for close to 40 years, and his book, The Way, An Ecological Worldview. Have you read either of those? Or yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, I have high regard for those 
to people in their work as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, impermanence and death. One of the things that I'm asking everybody, all the participants in this in this series, is how they view impermanence and death. And I mean, Connie and I, for example, have for close to a decade, we did programs on sort of a sacred science approach, uh-huh. um, a meaningful, inspiring look, science-based, um, about the role of death and impermanence in the universe. And you can't have a universe without death and, and, and impermanence. And so that's nourished us. But I'm just curious, how has, or has, has a, an understanding of impermanence and death as natural, as necessary, as no less sacred than life? Has that informed you or is that not something you think a lot about? No, it's, it's very much informed me because it's part of this cycle that, you know, I mean, you, you can't have in, let's say, the natural world or anything I can think of, something existing forever. Um, you, it, it would just, the whole system would break down and fall apart. You need to have new individuals, new players coming in and others exiting. It's part, and you have to have all those nutrients recycling through. And the only way to get them recycling is if there are things like death and impermanence. So no, it, it seems completely natural. And it's, you know, I think that um, we focus so much on life and, and, and we should actually be, I think, more focused just on death, that this is inevitability. Um, so that we're prepared for it. I think that probably, again, indigenous people had a much more accurate view of these sorts of things and death wasn't shunned. It was just a part of the whole mystery of existence. Um, and rightly so. For us, we package it and we hide it. Um, when no, it's, it's just a normal, important process that's a part of this thing. Yeah, that's great. I agree completely. So in terms of gifts, um, in coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot, resource depletion, uh, climate breakdown, and so on. Have you found um, um, a place beyond sort of mere acceptance, sort of the stages of grief leading to acceptance? And, and what's opened up for you on the other side? Well, I think it's something that was always there, but I've just turned to it a lot more. And that is that, um, you know, my relationship with the natural world, it, it is really important to me. I, uh, I can go out in the woods and I can be very analytical reading a history, but I also, when we lived in Vermont, um, had developed a, a one mile trail loop through our woodland there that I kept clear of sticks and everything. I could actually walk that trail with my eyes closed because if I started drifting off, I would start crunching sticks. So, but it was a very reflective practice. And I just find that you know, it's just really, really enriching. So that is, I think, my gift is, is nature and just communing with it and just realizing that this is way bigger than I am. It's been around a long time. It's going to be around here a long time more. I'm a part of it, a passing part, but it's just so enriching. Yeah. Wow. Well, the way you just articulated that reminded me of sort of a way of characterizing the difference between pro-future cultures and anti-future cultures. It seems to me that pro-future cultures, there's a humility embedded within the worldview, one of we belong to the land. Mm-hmm. And in anti-future cultures, there's a hubris built into the worldview. The land belongs to us. Oh yeah. 
and that's huge. And and it sounds like your version of of Darwin's sandpath uh, walk is precisely um, a practice. That was one of the other things I wanted to ask you. Are there other spiritual slash ecological practices that help keep your mind and heart in a in a grounded place? Yeah, I think that that's it. You know, it's I can talk about this now. I didn't used to talk about it. My mom passed away um, a few years ago, but when I was four, she developed mental illness and I was at home alone with her. My older siblings were in school. My dad traveled a lot and it was pretty scary. And uh, she actually taught me how to call her psychiatrist if she needed it. At, when my siblings would leave for school, there was a stool by our wall mounted telephone. She'd have me climb up on it and she'd keep the plunger down, but she had me dial the number and then to say, this is Tommy Wessels, my mommy needs your help. So one day she was in her room uh, hysterical and crying and screaming and she, I could hear her saying, call the doctor, Tommy, call. So I did, but of course a four-year-old, I thought they'd be there right away. Uh, it took them 20 minutes and I freaked out and went across the street into these woods that were across the street from our house. I was down there for hours and uh, it became something I just did. I felt very comfortable as a four-year-old being off in there on my own. Um, I never got lost. I sort of had a visual map in my head of where I was in the forest. I know my mom knew I was down there and she didn't stop me because I think she thought I was probably safer down there than with her. But that really became my connection to the natural world. It was, it, that was my sanctuary. That was actually, you know, my replacement mother when my mother couldn't be a mother. Um, so that's deeply embedded in me and it's deeply embedded in my practice. And yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. So Tom, last question, remaining opportunities. What is your take on what is beyond our control now and where we still can make a difference individually and collectively? In other words, what's your sense of what's no longer possible, but what still is possible? Yeah. I don't know if anything is completely off the list um, as being possible. I think it's going to be super, super challenging for something to this point. But one thing I think that really is possible is working in communities. Uh, you know, any change that we're going to do, it's going to come from the bottom up. And at least communities can start creating relationships in communities between people so they can be there to be supportive to each other. They can create networks. Um, and these communities can then be sort of the hubs of maybe what comes later, you know, at least the models that come later. But there's a lot we can do at the community level. Um, and luckily, you know, even at the state level, it's still possible. There's some states that have done quite a bit. Uh, you know, at the federal level, I think, forget it. You know, so maybe that is one of the ones that's off the table. I think you know, that, that probably is off the table at this point because it's just complete gridlock. They can't do anything of import. Um, yeah. So it has to be done at smaller scales, but the good news is that in all complex systems, all meaningful change always bubbles up from the bottom. Yeah. So yeah. that's where I've found to focus my attention is at the community level. Yeah, that's great. So, so Tom, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I just, as I mentioned, Connie and I love your work and you have offered us uh, a grounding in sort of what I call ecological spirituality. For me, spirituality is simply what helps us live in right relationship to reality. So thank you for this. Yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, important conversations to have.
Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-Doom conversations, as well as other post-Doom resources, visit postdoom.com.